Hey, good morning, Gretna family. It's Pastor Rob. It is so great to see you today. We are in the second week of our series. It's called The New Exodus, where we kind of follow the stories of the prophets Ezra and Nehemiah and their books in the Bible as the people of God return to the homeland. They return to the place that God has promised them after a time of being in exile in Babylon. Now, as we learned last week, they, they got there, they became exiled because... God allowed it to happen. He allowed it to happen because they had forgotten who he was. They had begun to worship other gods and had, and placed him at a far lower position of importance in their lives. And so the prophet Jeremiah predicted that, that he would, that God would lift up another army from the outside and he would take them away. And he would do so for a period of 70 years. In fact, he told them it would be long enough that you should start a new life there. He said in Jeremiah chapter 29, take new wives, start new businesses, start a family, get used to being there. You're going to be gone for a while. But Ezra and Nehemiah kind of chronicled the return of the people of God back to Israel as God kept his promise. And that was that was our focus last week, is that God is a keeper of his promises, though they may not be kept in the way we expect him to, um, and sometimes not even in the way we want him to. The truth is, God, if he makes a promise, will keep it. And there's a strength to be found in that, a faithfulness that you just can't find anywhere else in this world, and something for all of us to hold on to, knowing that our God, with, with him, as in Luke 1.37 says, for with him nothing is impossible, right? He is the only force in all of the universe that knows what has happened, that knows what will come, and has the capacity to keep his promises in ways that really nobody or nothing else can. So last week we focused mostly on that. We looked at Ezra chapter 1 and parts of 2 and then parts of Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2 and we focused on God keeping his promises and God being that faithful promise keeper. This week we're going to focus a little more on the people's response. How did the people of God respond and what did it call from them in order to heed his call. But before we do that, I'd like to ask you a question. Um, if I could offer you, let's say um, I had a time machine, and I could offer you an opportunity to go back and start a new life in 1950, instead of when this is being recorded, January 2022, if I could give you a chance to start a new life in 1950, would you? Would you? Now, the truth is, if you remember 1950, if you were there, you might be more likely to do so because you know exactly what you're going back into or at least have some idea, some memory or association or familiarity with what you'd be going back into. If you weren't born in 1950, I think your gut level reaction is to say, probably to say, no, I don't want that. But before you do, let me suggest a few things before you say no or yes. There are some differences, I think, now between then and now. We could obviously list them ad nauseum, but I just want to give you a few. The first is the, the value of a dollar, right? In 1950, you could buy quite a bit with a dollar. In fact, if you adjust according to inflation, what you could buy in 1950 for a dollar would require nearly $12 to buy right now. So if you, you wanted to spend $500 on something in 1950, you're looking at a lot, around $5,766.56, $5, according to a survey I just saw 
that you'd be looking to need to buy the same amount of whatever, whether that be um, a used car or be a washing machine or whatever it is you were trying to buy. $500 wouldn't get you very far now, but it would have gotten you very, very far then. You also think about the finances and the way things worked back then. The truth is, in 1950, it was possible for a family to have a single income, one breadwinner, one person working in the family, and have it still make financial sense, right? You could provide a living. You put a roof over your head, clothes on your back, food in your belly, and maybe even look to buy a bigger house down the road or take vacations and just enjoy life, a comfortable life. But now, here in 2022, good luck making that work on a single income, right? You almost need two in order to have anywhere near the standard of living you would have had on one 60 or 70 years ago. So there's an upside to going to, to 1950. On the downside, um, the truth is that you would not have access to technology, modern tech, cell phones, computers, those things that we've come to depend on and lean on so much. Now, if you've never had them, that's one thing. But once you've gotten used to living life a certain way, when, some, when something disappears, it becomes hard. Cell phones have become, well, really connected to almost all of us, right, in, in our world here, in the United States at least. We carry them all the time. We depend on them. We depend on them for directions. We depend on them for um, a sense of safety and security when we're out alone. Remember, if you were out driving alone in your car in 1950, there's no phone, right? There's no opportunity to call anyone to ask for help. So you, you're taking that trade. You're giving up the technology. Right? On the upside, though, if you go back to 1950, crime rates, noticeably lower. Terrorist threats, not really much of a thing. But also, polio was a genuine threat. The vaccine was just in the developmental stages at that point, implementation stages. So there's so health threats, not COVID, but certainly polio, a debilitating disease. So there's a give and a take. There's a trade-off. And regardless of where your feelings are, if your feelings are, yeah, I would love to go back to 1950, it is, it's a simpler time, right? Life seems less complicated then than it does now. And it would be nice to be able to live on a single income and provide for my family instead of needing two. Or you're on this end of it going, no, I like my cell phone. <laughs> I like the safety and security it allows for. I like the fact that our healthcare system is improved. I really don't want to go back. But regardless of which side you're on, let me ask you another question. Does your answer change if God says he wants you to make that move? Instead of Rob showing up with a time machine and saying, I want you to go back to 1950. I want you to go to this place that maybe some of you remember, but most of you probably don't. If it's not me, if it, God shows up and says, I want you to do that, does that change your answer? And that really is at the crux of the challenge that the people of God have as we read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Last week, we looked at, at chapter one of the book of Ezra, and we discussed the fact that that. In verse, chapter 1, verse 6, only those that were roused, whose spirit God had roused, moved, chose to move. It is not unreasonable to think that it, that meant that sometimes families 
would split. There were some that would choose to go where God wanted them to go, and some that would say, no, I want to stay here. I want to stay where I am now. And that may or may not have been all part of God's plan, but the truth is their reality was it probably separated families. The choice to say, I will go where God wants me to go because he's the one asking the question and telling me he wants me to go and, and rousing my spirit to do that also means making some sacrifices. It means leaving behind the home you've built, the, the life you've built, the career you've built. If you're a tent maker in Babylon, do you go set up a new shop in Jerusalem? Or do you end up doing something else that's outside your skill set? You might be leaving behind some of your friends. You might be leaving behind um, your role in Babylonian society. We know that that was Nehemiah's choice, right? As we looked at Nehemiah chapter one, we know that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. He lived in the palace, had a pretty good life, all things considered, had status, had influence, had a viable way to take care of himself and his family. I mean, all those things are wonderful, but he had to make the choice to say, look, God is moving me to do something. Do I do it or do I hold on to what I have? That's really sacrificial to make the choice to give up what we have. In fact, sacrifice in general, the definition we're going to work with through this message today is this. Sacrifice is that act of giving up something we value. So our homes, our families, our comfort level, our safety and security even, but giving up those something we value for the sake of something more important or more worthy. When it comes to serving God, to obeying the call that he has upon us, that's really a decision we have to make. The people of God then had to make it, and we have to make it. Is what is more worthy, my own pursuits or the pursuits that God has for me? If it's more worthy, it means I'm going to have to sacrifice some things in my personal life. And the truth is, if we're not sacrificing some things for the sake of the calling that God has on us or the mission that God has for us, then we've already kind of made our decision to say, even if it's God asking me to go, I may not do it. We've decided which one is more important, and we've drawn a line that is that is tantamount to saying, this is what I'm willing to sacrifice, and once you get up above the line, this is not what I'm willing to sacrifice. So as we read today, we're going to be in Ezra chapter 2, and we kind of touched on it last week. We're also going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3, bits and pieces of that too. But the people of God are wrestling with what it looks like to make those sacrifices. In Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it starts off this list of 67 verses that kind of flow this same way. Let me read verses one and two to you. I'm reading out of the CSB. It says, these are now the people of the province who came from those captive exiles. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had deported to Babylon. Right? So remember the people of God that had been in exile. So they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvai, Reham, and Banah, the number of the Israelite men 
included. And it goes on to 65 verses that lists off literally thousands of men who picked up their families and did exactly that. They said, God is moving us to go somewhere else. We need to be able to sacrifice and willing to sacrifice what we have to invest in something for the sake of something more important, more worthy than our pursuits here. He lists family after family, name after name. And those, those lists of names that you see in scripture, we wonder often why. Why make such a list of names? Those names don't mean much to us. That name, those names I just read off, honestly, I could have pronounced them wrong, right? And I don't know that anybody would have noticed <laughs> unless you speak ancient Hebrew. I don't know that you would have noticed. But, and truthfully, I wouldn't have noticed. I may have pronounced them wrong. <laughs> but we make those names or they use make those lists because they want to know, they want to remember. And they want to make note of the sacrifices that those who have come before them have made so that they can have a new life, a new relationship with God. And that's very, very important because the truth is that none of us would be where we are today in our relationship with God if it weren't for those who came before us, if it weren't for our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents and our great-great-great-grandparents. The truth is the story of who Jesus is has been carried forth by those who came before us. And we stand on their shoulders as we approach God. And that's, that's really what those lists are about. When we, we look at 65 verses and say to ourselves, do I really want to try to read those names? Those names are important. They're not just names. They're designed to help people understand where they've come from and to appreciate where they are now. But those people, as they travel, as they make those sacrifices, as they leave their old lives behind, I don't know. I might think that was enough. I might say to myself, you know what? I've left behind everything to chase you, God. This is, this is, this is it. That's where my line is. And I don't expect you to ask any more for me. But they do something else. They do something really extraordinary upon their arrival. If we finish up chapter 2, Ezra chapter 2, verses 68 through 70, listen to this one. It says this, it says they arrived in the Lord's house in Jerusalem, which by the way is in shambles. And some of the family heads gave free will offerings to the house of God in order to have it rebuilt on its original site. Based on what they could give, they gave 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, 100 priestly garments to the treasury for the project. The priests, the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, and some of the people settled in their towns, and the rest of Israel settled in their towns. These people go across this massive journey across hundreds of miles, probably took them months. They probably lost people along the way. That was a very common occurrence. If you fell ill or sick, the caravan may not be able to wait on you, right? They may have been robbed by bandits. Whatever the case may be, it was not an easy journey. They gave up a lot. They've put up a lot, put up with a lot, and trudged through a lot. And they arrive in this place that God has promised them. He's returning them to. And their first response is something extraordinary. It's to, to give even more sacrificially to what God is calling them to. 
because you know they had plans for that money, right? It says they gave up 61,000 gold coins and 6,250 pounds of silver. They gave so much of what they had. You know they had plans to start that new business or to build a new home or buy new clothes after the long journey to establish an entirely new life. But the obedience that God was calling them to, this obedience meant that when necessary, these Jewish leaders were willing to sacrifice their own possessions for the sake of God's call because it was more important. It was more important. I think one of the, the best ways to think about, the think, to think of serving God and to, is to ask ourselves what we do with our time and our treasure and our talent. Do we, do we give sacrificially of those things because, frankly, of what he sacrificed for us? And I think that's very, very important here, especially us who are on the other side of Jesus. The Savior has come. The Messiah has come. And if you've chosen to follow him, he's given you He's given you everything. He's given you his life. He sacrificed his son so that we could have life. And he didn't say, this is the line, right? He didn't say to us, this is the line I'm willing to go to. And after that, there's not much I can do for you. He went what I think almost all of us would say was above and beyond what any of us would be comfortable sacrificing. He did that for us. In Ezra chapter two, what we just looked at was them sacrificing of those three items, treasure, time, and talent, sacrificing their treasure, right? Their possessions, their finances, the things that they, they value the most that they kind of hold on to and giving them over to God believing and knowing that again he will keep his promise he will care for them and he will provide in nehemiah we see them give the other two pieces we see them give their time and their talent now you should certainly say in ezra's time they gave their time too right but nehemiah really delineates the importance of them being willing to give their time and their talent also to the work that god had called them to in Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, The high priest Eliashib and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. Why it's called a sheep gate, I don't know. Maybe the sheep came in and out of it. They dedicated it and installed its doors. And after building the wall and the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of the Hananel, they dedicated it. The men of Jericho built next to Eliashib and next to Zechur, the son of Imri, built. And then he goes into this another set of verses about who has done what. And he talks about how they've put in their time, they've invested in building the gates and the walls, the fish gate, the old gate, the broad gate, the tower of ovens. Can you imagine that, a tower of ovens? I've seen a double stack, but a tower of ovens, that just creates a picture on my mind. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, right? But then he also talks about their talents. He talks about stonemasons and goldsmiths and merchants that were acquiring materials. He talks about metal workers that build bolts and bars. He talks about temple servants lifting and carrying. And, and even in what we just read, he talks about singers, right? Giving what they can to the task at hand. Priests, leaders, sons and daughters, all working as one, giving of their time and using their God-given talents. Can you imagine 
the scene, right? Thousands of God's people working shoulder to shoulder, doing everything they can to respond to the promise keeper that is God, the faithful one that is God, and to respond to the call that they have, that he has on their lives, and that they have said, yes, I'm in, I'm all in. So often, uh, our faith is lacking because we're only willing to give so much to it, right? And this entire sermon could very quickly begin to feel like uh, Rob is saying, hey, you need to send more money to the church. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that every time in my life and the lives of these people here and throughout history, those who have given more to God in whatever capacity that is, time, treasure, or talent, right? Or another category if you can come up with it, have never been left wanting, right? Once you recognize that you're investing in something more important, whatever, however you're investing, however you're called to invest, and you've said, yes, God, I'm all in. I'm not measuring it out and I'm not making sure no matter what I keep for myself. I'm taking care of what you've called me to do, God, because I know you will take care of it. I don't have never met a person that was left without, that God did not provide, that God did not care for, that God did not fulfill his promise to keep. So often we don't give him a chance to fulfill his promises and show his faithfulness because we're not willing to trust him with our lives. Because the truth is, if you're investing your time, your treasure, and your talent sacrificially, that means you're extending yourself beyond the means that you can provide on your own. That is when God shows up. That is when he has an opportunity to work. We are just so often busy protecting ourselves But in the midst of this entire section of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter three in verses three through five, he calls out a group of people for not being willing to do that, for not being willing to give sacrificially. He flat calls them out. It says in verse three, it says, the sons of Hanassah built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors and bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimath, son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, made repairs. Beside them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Baana, made repairs. But in verse 5, beside them, the Tekoites made repairs. But, don't be the but, <laughs> but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors in the midst of this scene of everyone in the people of God doing their part to reestablish their home, to do the, do the part that God has called them to in this time, in this place, to restore them. They see these nobles, literally there it means exalted ones. It means the ones that saw themselves as important weren't willing to help. He calls them out for their lack of willingness to contribute their time, their treasure, and their talent. Why do you think that is? Why do you think he would do that? My gut reaction is because their excuse, whatever it was, wasn't good enough. The truth is we make those excuses all that all the time, right? Um, my schedule is too busy to spend time reading my Bible Uh, It's too busy to take out time to worship. It's too busy to stop and tell somebody about Jesus. It's too busy to help out at 
uh, our daily bread or any one of a number of other places where you could practically make an impact in the world around us, tangibly make an impact in the world around us. Maybe the Tekoites nobles' excuses were, I, I don't have a skill that's worthy of this. I'm not a stonemason. I'm not a goldsmith. I'm not a metal worker. I can't do these things. But he has just taken the time to say, the singers, Eliashad, the chief priests, the priests are, are doing these things. They're not stonemasons. That's, that's not their gift, but they're lifting a rock or they're encouraging somebody with song or praying over them or doing something, anything to be engaged with the task. The truth is we are designed to work best when we are all doing it together. And as Paul would later say in the book of Corinthians, we are all one body with many parts. We have many different functions. And when one of those parts is missing because it's decided, I don't have anything to give to this project, then the body is lacking. And that's the case here, right? Maybe, maybe our excuse is, I don't know where I would start, right? I've never done anything like this before. I don't know what I would do. The answer is you just do. You, you just roll up your sleeves and you dive in and you do your best. I have repeatedly, personally, personal testimony, been blessed in my life over and over again by being completely incapable of doing something. And once I just got past the fear and said, okay, God, I'm going to do this. And I just had to trust him to get me through it, that he has made things work, not just through me, but almost in spite of me, right? Almost in spite of my failings. But again, first have to be willing to sacrifice my pride, my time, Maybe one of our excuses is, I wouldn't make a difference anyway. If God is calling you, if he's roused your spirit, and he said, go do this, it's because he believes you can make a difference, whether you or I believe it or not. And maybe it's, maybe it's just, I don't do that kind of work. Maybe these exalted ones, these nobles, they don't... I don't know how to do that stuff. I don't, I don't lift rocks. I don't hammer things. I'm, I'm an intellectual. Um, the truth is, Jesus served where he needed to serve. He healed where he needed to heal. His people, us, we are called to sacrifice and serve where we need to serve so that our God is brought glory, so that people can see him through our actions, and again, sometimes even despite our failings. Because the world is gripped with fear. We often avoid doing anything that we think we cannot do well. But if we have faith, if we really believe in the promise keeper, if we really believe that he will carry us through, shouldn't we be willing to do some things anyways? And, and the lack of willingness to be sacrificial, again, it's, it's human in its nature. I've used this phrase many times over the years. I have a friend who says the problem with living sacrifices, which is what we're called to be, right? Living sacrifices. The problem with them is they're always trying to crawl off the altar. <laughs> they're always trying to avoid the challenge and avoid the difficulty. But this seems in absolute contrast to the example set by our Lord and Savior, by Jesus himself. Paul talks about it in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. It says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ, who, existing in the form of God, 
did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our example, right? So much of what Jesus did for us was be the example of who we are intended to be. Jesus was humbled. Jesus was obedient. Jesus was sacrificial. And that is, again, no easy task. But it is so critical for us, if you personally, let's make it personal, if you want to know who our God is and who he's calling you to be, you have to be willing to jump in where he tells you to jump in or you're going to miss that picture. If your picture of who God is seems incomplete or inadequate, it might be because you haven't jumped in where he wants you to jump in. But it also gives you an opportunity to see him work. You see, the charge of the people of God at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah was to answer his call, right? To When the Spirit roused them, when he said, hey... I need you to do something for them to answer, for them to respond. And sometimes for them to leave behind parts of their old life to embrace something more worthy, to sacrifice what was for something more worthy simply based on the fact that God had called them to it. They had to step out on faith and, and enter a land they knew only by reputation. The vast majority of them would be like us going back to 1950. We don't know that personally. They only know what it was based on the memories of those who have come before them and only that God says you need to go. And their call was to make his presence known in his home, to rebuild his temple, to rebuild his city and rebuild his people. Our call is not all that different. Our call, our charge, is, to, is also to answer his call to allow the Spirit to rouse us, to allow us to be willing to let go and leave behind those things that are holding us back and say, yes, God, it's yours. You do with it what you will. It is to step out on faith and in spreading the gospel, among other things, and giving sacrificially of our time, our treasure, and our talent, of investing in the betterment of the world around us, helping others with a hand sometimes, helping others with just a hand on their shoulder or a shoulder to cry on or just taking time to pray for them, lifting up others, stepping out on faith and doing that. I had a friend earlier this week text me something or maybe last week that said, look, if spreading the gospel was easy, then we wouldn't need Jesus to do it, right? That's part of what stepping out on faith is. It's trusting that he will, he will respond and he will lift us up when we need it. And our, our charge is also to make, just like them, is to make his presence known, serving others in our community, with, in, in, in our local community, with our daily bread or new path or the Buckeye Gospel Barn, just looking for opportunities to make a difference, to make a difference in the world around us. And by serving families within our church and in our communities, we have an opportunity to step into the world that God has called us to. We have an opportunity to step out on faith, to be his people in this time 
and this place, and it is a time when the world desperately needs it. But make no mistake, it will cost us something. And we all have to decide for ourselves, and I hope you decide for God here, because we have to decide for ourselves if we're willing to sacrifice something of ourselves for something more valuable and more worthy, and that is the calling that God has on our lives. That stands at the crux of what it means to be a follower of Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. My phone is ringing. May his face shine upon you and he be gracious to you. May he grant you favor and give you peace. God bless.